I've tentatively given a subject matter to when Dr. Rayburn asked to me, I asked, wrote to me, something to some thoughts about speaking the gospel into our era. A nice broad subject, so it's lots of room to move. But if we're going to understand our generation, and if we're going to speak the gospel into it, we must understand something really about it, not just in a haphazard way, or even because we ourselves have passed through it, but we must understand it in an analyzed way. Because you must always see there are two halves to preaching the gospel. And the one half is that which is unchangeable. Uh, the gospel does not change from century to century, from year to year. It is the same always. This is the same absolute truth in the scripture. And these are absolutely unchangeable. These do not change. And yet at the same time, if we're going to be effective in any one era, we must at the same time be aware that we're preaching the gospel into a changing situation. The world which we're speaking to <coughs> is not always the same. It is changing, 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 changing. And if we are preaching the unchangeable truth of the gospel, but in a way that we're suited particularly for a past generation, we are giving the truth, but while we're giving the truth, they, they simply won't touch uh, the people to whom we're speaking. We just pass them by. A good exercise in this regard would be reading Charles Hodges' three volumes of theology from end to end. I don't know if you've ever exercised that discipline, but it's an interesting one. And... Uh, if you do, there's two things which are, which are very striking. The first thing is the fact that uh, you find there the same things that have always been true and always will be true. And a tremendous amount in Charles Hodge, which is really very helpful <coughs> in, in uh, lecturing and speaking into the present generation. But you're also aware very, very rapidly there's a mass of material there that has nothing to do with us at all. Areas in which he was fighting against certain theories of science, philosophy, which are just bygone. Uh, they're, they're jousting at windmills today <coughs> because they're no longer a force. <coughs> As a matter of fact, it's amusing if you know the changes in science to read where he's arguing against certain things uh, about uh, science of his own day, which was against, the, against Christianity. And you find that he's arguing about this. These things have passed away. They don't exist anymore. They just aren't there. And certainly, as you read Charles Hodge and as you read Warfield, and uh, these other men, one thing is very, very apparent, and that is it never occurred to them to fight existentialism because existentialism didn't exist. So there's nothing in Charles Hodge or Warfield which would help you really to stand against existentialism because existentialism would have been unthinkable to them. They wouldn't have considered that intelligent men and the wise men of the world would have ever come within a few short years. I'm sure they never visualized it come in a few short years to, to the complete change that has come in the intellectual thought, theologically and secular, in our own generation. So now, when, if we intend to really be uh, those who are tellers of the gospel at any one moment of history, and after all, we have our own moment of history. If Christ doesn't come back, we are soon dead. And there's another moment of history. Uh, if, uh, uh, but we, and we cannot pass preach the gospel in the past. We're preaching to our generation. And so... I want. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, um, and thus, the, where it's imperative, it's absolutely imperative uh, that, um, that we understand the generation in which we live in. This, we don't understand just because we live in it. And another thing we must realize is that it is not only when we analyze it that we're influenced by it. We are children of our generation. We are children of our generation.
And everyone has a world view. And this is something that people really don't think about enough, and Christians don't think about enough. Everyone had a, has a set of presuppositions. Everyone has a world view. And this world view, this set of presuppositions, is the way they look at the world. And they will look at the world, and they will look at everything that comes to them through that grid. And every one of us has a grid through which we look at the world and the facts that come to it. And if you're going to understand people's reaction, if you're going to understand people's reaction um, to the things which are in our generation, you must understand the grid through which the present generation is feeding its stuff. Because it sees everything with its own spectacle. And just as you put on a pink pair of spectacles, things look differently than if you put on a black pair of spectacles, so it is also true uh, that if you're looking at things through a 20th century grid, the second half of the 20th century grid, it's considerably different than if you're looking at things through uh, a grid of 1900, and especially when there's been the titanic intellectual revolution that has come in our generation. More than this, you must realize that people will operate pretty consistently on the basis of their worldview and their presuppositions. Even if they haven't gotten their presuppositions through analyzation, even if they haven't gotten their worldview through anal a careful analyzation of things, people act remarkably consistently upon their presuppositions. Now, admittingly, at the same time that they have, are surrounded by their own presuppositions and look, uh, take everything through the grid of the presupposition, is the fact, and we say this in parenthesis here, is the factor that everyone is made in the image of God, whether they know it or not. So and there's a tension. They are not able to act completely consistent to their non-Christian presuppositions because it's contrary to who they really are, that they're really made in the image of God. But on the other hand, you cannot expect people to act, act uh, <coughs> with uh, inconsistency, total inconsistency, or overwhelming inconsistency would be a better word. You cannot expect them to do this against their presuppositions. If people have a material set of presuppositions, they will work on this factor, as we shall see as we go along. Uh, now, again, we must, let me emphasize again, they will not emphasize, they won't work on their presuppositions totally consistently because it's a contrary to who they are if they have a non-Christian set of presuppositions because they're made in the image of God, whether they admit it or not. So people can say there are no morals and yet have moral motions. People can say there is no such thing, there is no such thing as order, in, really, and yet they act as though there's order. Skinner can act, B.F. Skinner can say there is no such thing as freedom, and yet if you listen to his words as he's talking, he brings in freedom words. And these things are there because they're made in the image of God. And yet having said this, we are, we're, we become wise, you can almost plot a curve, uh, and you come out pretty well. If you take a man's presuppositions or a generation's presuppositions, and you say, well, he should say this five years from now. It is remarkable how many times he will say this five years from now. So I must say at times I frighten myself in my projections because I'm no prophet. I just know something uh, about, the, uh, about our generation, and I know the truths of the gospel. But I've been overwhelmed at times and scared myself to death at how many times I've made projections and they turned out right about what will come next, what will come next. And as I think of this, uh, therefore, as I go down through these lectures and talk about not only what we're facing, we're facing now, but what will come next, uh, I do urge you to take it seriously, because if Christ doesn't come back, and if you live a normal lifespan, those of you who are young men here training for the ministry, you will be, you will be confronted with another set of things, I believe, in the next 20 years than we are confronted with today. Uh, the same basic things, but different formations of them.
Now, we must realize next that most people catch their presuppositions or their worldview the same way children catch measles. And children catch measles not by thinking about it, by just catching the measles. And most people catch their presuppositions either from their family or their culture without any analyzation. And this is absolutely true. Most people who, most people who go to a modern university today and come out anti-Christian, come out anti-Christian because they just caught their presuppositions like measles. Not because they thought them through, not because they've really, really considered them, but simply because they've caught them. Or if you live in the midst of our generation at all, with it being surrounded <coughs> with a 20th century mentality, it's very easy just to accept that it must be this way because everybody's thinking of it this way. But I would point out that here and there through the ages, there are men who have not, not caught their presuppositions uh, by, uh, by uh, osmosis of this nature. But rather they, have, rather they have thought through the set of presuppositions that gives an answer to the universe in which they live and an answer to themselves, and they choose their presuppositions. And I would just say this is the way wise men should do. And those of you who come out have been raised in Christian backgrounds, raised in Christian homes, and you have, um, you have just accepted this all the way through, somewhere along the line, and certainly seminaries, they couldn't have a better place than seminary in which to do it, you must think through your presuppositions on the reason why you, as to why you believe them. And you should do it in a place, and that's why people are ridden with folly to go to a theological seminary that isn't a Bible-believing seminary. If the thing to do is go to a Bible-believing seminary and think through, not just learn certain abs a certain number of facts, from the Bible-believing view, but this is the time for you to really be mature and think through your own presuppositions as to why you hold your presuppositions, why you hold your worldview, why you're surrounded by professors who can help you if you run into a snag. And certainly by the time you graduate from your theological seminary, it shouldn't be just a case of you holding your presuppositions because you've caught them like a, a child who catch measles but from the surrounding culture. So you, most people get their presuppositions either from their family or from the surrounding culture. Uh, those who are cynical say that's the way all people catch them, and uh, that, that this is the way all Christians do. And all too often, uh, it is this way, but it shouldn't be this way if you're going to be fighters for the gospel in the midst of a generation like our own. You ought to know why, why it is that you really accept the presuppositions that you accept, why you accept the worldview that you, why, that you accept. You ought to be able to give an, an answer for your faith was spoken of in the scriptures. So now we must see that here we have a set of, we have, we have uh, a gospel which is unchanging and at the same time we have a, uh, we have a changing situation. And it is my thesis, as you know if you've read my books or listened to my lectures, that a revolution has occurred. And I want to talk about that revolution, even though it'll be some repetition of my books, there'll be other material in it too. Uh, the revolution that we face. I'm convinced that to preach the gospel now, the way that, as, as though we were living in the year 1900, we'll miss the majority of the 20th century people. Now, this doesn't mean that some won't be saved. And some will be saved because a certain number of people, and especially a certain class, the middle class people, are still living as though it were 1900 in their intellectual setting. So I'm not minimizing the preaching of the gospel in a way as would have been preached by, say, Moody and Sankey. I'm not saying it's wrong, but what I am saying is it won't touch our generation. One can feel this very thoroughly in the Christian radio broadcasts that are broadcast over Europe. And that is most of these broadcasts are picked up out of the Bible-believing setting in the United States, uh, somewhere in the Midwest, set out by a Bible school or something like this, 
that, that works with people who aren't 20th century people, brought over to Europe, translated into European languages, and broadcast over Europe, and it simply doesn't touch home. And it doesn't touch home because it's talking to people who really are thinking in a different thought form. So you can say it this way, and that is you can say that everybody has two languages. The one language that you have is your linguistic language, is your other is your cultural language. And if you're going to preach the gospel, you must learn to preach the gospel taking into account both languages, the, inter the, la the linguistic language and the cultural language, or you won't be understood. And I think one of the great weaknesses of our missionary program have been that we insist that somebody, a couple, go to the mission field and they spend three years learning the linguistic language and we take into account not at all that they have to spend some time learning the cultural language. And we have missionaries all over the world who are simply shut up to a small segment of the society of those to whom they preach because they haven't taken time to learn the cultural language of those to whom they're speaking. And this is a real tragedy and it's filled with folly. And I don't believe it's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I would just say all you have to do is think of Paul and how Paul spoke differently to the Jews and to the, and to the Greeks and the Romans. He spoke differently to these two classes. And he took into account, he took into account the culture of that day into those to whom he spoke. So now we must see if all these things, what I'm saying, are not theoretical. I'm not giving you a course of theoretical apologetics. People are always asking me to enter into the battle of apologetics. And, and I, I, I reject the invitation. And the reason I do is that I'm not interested in theology, I'm not interested in theoretical apologetics. Now I'm not saying nobody should be. That's a different sentence again. But for me, apologetics has to do with the people to whom you speak. And the, the, the apologetics will differ slightly depending upon the people to whom you're speaking. If somebody comes rushing up to you and says what the Philippian jailer said, says what must I do to be saved, and you get down into presuppositional apologetics, Really, you ought to have your head x-rayed. This, this is ridiculous. What you say is, you answer the same word as Paul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. On the other hand, if you talk to somebody who's living in the 1900 mentality, uh, then there is, an, uh, there is another thing you can do in talking to them. But if you're dealing with 20th century people, you better be able to understand 20th century people, and your apologetic approach will be slightly different for the simple reason that the battle is further back. So there's no use talking about truth to people who do not believe that truth exists. You have to talk about truth in a different way than you would to the 19th century person. Same with values, same with meaning, same with the whole thing. So my interest, my interest therefore, is in a practical way, as I talk to people, I try to find out where they are. And if they're in the serve, serve what must I do to be saved stage, then I give them the gospel as simply as anybody's ever given them, just as Paul did. If, on the other hand, I find them to be a uh, 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 19th century person, and there are still plenty of 19th century persons around, then I would talk in a slightly different way. Not only in my linguistic language, but my, my, my apologetic language. If, on the other hand, they're the kind of people I work with largely, and that's the 20th century people, then you have to be able to go one step back of that and talk about truth, and why something about, give them a, a foundation that hopes the truth really exists. So this is not a theoretic, this is not a course on theoretical apologetics. And as I would repeat, it isn't that I minimize theoretical apologetics, but it's not my cup of tea. As far as I'm concerned, I'm an evangelist. And the evangelism, the evangelism comes on various levels. And as I see myself, my interest in apologetics has grown up out of how we can talk to the people that surround us, not only on the basis of their linguistic language, 
but how we can talk the people who surround us on the basis of their cultural and intellectual language. And that's my effort. And all my books are bent to this end. They're not trying to build, build a watertight system of theoretical apologetics, so I'm not minimizing that if that's somebody else's calling. Now, as we come to understand our generation, there is a, there is a date which we must never forget. And everyone goes back to that date in sparkling 1964. I was just reading an article in Newsweek, this week's Newsweek I'll refer to later, in which I was interested, uh, it was the first page nine of this week's Newsweek, My Turn by Bob Green. And I was intrigued that he goes back to 1963 as his watershed. And he's quite right, you know, because something happened at Berkeley which has changed our world. It didn't come out of nowhere. Anybody who was thinking, anybody who was thinking should have been able to make a projection that it was going to happen sometime. But it did happen in Berkeley in 1964. And the world has been entirely different since. I was interested in Japan. It isn't any different in Japan. Berkeley, 1964, has been exported to Japan. So the students, when you talk in Japan, are 19, are, are live on this side of 1964 Berkeley. When you're in Singapore, and I'm answering questions at the University of Singapore, it's the same thing. These people live on this side, on this side of Berkeley, 1964. As a parenthesis, I would say, as a matter of fact, the Eastern students have it harder than the Western in that much of the Western thinking has now become Eastern. We're really very close to Eastern thinking in the West now. So what we have done is imported, in a sense, Eastern thinking, and we have put it in our own packaging, our own boxes, our own philosophic and our own, say, rock music boxes, and we have sent it back to the student in the East. So in actuality, the student in the East has it twice. If you take, for instance, in Japan, Buddhism is the basic, basic cultural base. Not that everybody's an active religious Buddhist, but Buddhism provides their framework of thought. Now here they're surrounded with a Buddhistic framework of thought that rests on the emphasis of a final impersonal. And then on top of that, we send back to them the same concepts packaged in, in very, very uh, attractive uh, and highly high-powered intellectual 20th century thought which emphasize the same thing. So the students in a place like Tokyo or Singapore have it twice. And I was interested in each place I went that I found this to be true. It isn't that suddenly I found myself talking to people who didn't understand what I was talking about, but in each of the countries where we were in our recent lectures in the Far East, uh, I found the students to be very, very aware. Uh, and the more sharp they were, the more clearly they were aware, but even if they weren't sharp, they were influenced by it, whether they were aware or not, though I would repeat the sharp ones were aware, that they would live on this side of Berkeley, 1964. Now, two things happened in Berkeley in 1964 which changed the world. And <clears throat> they weren't born there, as I'll show in my lectures. They had a long history in the past. They merely came to fruition in 1964. Why it came in 1964 might be open to someone's Ph.D. thesis. Uh, but, but it did come. Uh, as I say, people who lived in the past, and the Christians of all people, we should have known that it was going to come to Berkeley in 1964. One of the things that distresses me is because we, we preach the gospel, we who are Bible-believing Christians, but have spent so little time on the intellectual concepts which surround us and the cultural concepts that surround us, we often are the last ones to know what's happening instead of the first ones. And boy, that's wrong. It's just plain wrong. If we have the truth, we ought to be able to be making projections under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and on a firm foundation of the Scriptures. 
we know what we should be able to plot a course we are here and now what's coming next and we should be preparing the church for what's coming next and I would just say I think a theological seminary is not being fully successful and might even be said to be a failure if it isn't planned if it isn't teaching the young people the young men who and young women who come and train at it to preach the gospel in the next projection and instead of that very very often in our theological seminaries and in our Christian colleges it works in reverse and that is <coughs> there's a tendency for the professors, and a very natural one, to, uh, to teach the courses on the basis of what was the battles in their own generation. And therefore, there's a tendency to be taught to fight yesterday's battles rather than a, rather than a projection of fighting tomorrow's battles. And I very deeply feel that a theological seminary ought to be teaching its students to fight tomorrow's battles and not yesterday's battles. <clears throat> Now, so we should have been able to know that it was coming. But why it came at Berkeley in 1964, as I say, could be open to a large study, which I never expect to make in my lifetime. But two things occurred, and it was the hippie movement and the free speech movement. The hippie movement and the free speech movement. And they came simultaneously. The hippie movement was simply the old beat movement plus drugs. But you can't have the hippie movement without drugs. It was Ginsburg, Snyder, Watts, Tim Leary. Most of these are old men now, in the eyes of the of the present culture. But in 1964, these men and others like them, but especially these men, led the hippie hippie uh, the hippie thing, and the hippie thing was drugs. We'll explain as we go along why I think it is that hippie that the drug thing came forth at the moment when it did. The other thing was free speech, <coughs> free speech, and free speech, you must see, was neither left nor right. I know young men who are now, who are at that, in the middle of the Berkeley free speech bit, who are both on the left and the right, that is, some on the left, some on the right. It wasn't a left or right political movement. In this sense, it was our political. But it was political in the sense that it was claiming the right for the students to speak freely on political matters, regardless of what their political views were. It was, there were strong right people in it, and there were strong left people in it, and there were intermediate people in it. So you had both the hippie movement and the free speech movement, and it came suddenly, Berkeley in 64, and the whole world has changed. The whole world changed. And as I say, it has changed not only in the West, but in the East out of this, and carried by many, many different vehicles over the world. Now, however, we must see that this didn't come out of the blue. As I say, somebody should have been able to make a projection to see what was going to happen. It came out of the past. There are deep, deep roots for both the hippie movement and the free speech movement. And we must understand, we must understand the, the two roots if we're going to understand how to preach the gospel to our generation. We must understand both sets of roots. And the, uh, the first root, the first root was the root of, uh, philosophy. We must never despise philosophy. Uh, there are two meanings to the word philosophy, and we mustn't confuse them. The one meaning to the word philosophy is a very highly technical, uh, rather academic subject studied by a few people in some universities. And this is philosophy, and very, very few people really get into philosophy in this highly technical sense. But there's another sense of philosophy which is universal, and that is a philosophy is men's world's view. What they believe about the world and the way they look at the world. And in this sense, this sense, every man is a philosopher. 
there is no such thing as a man who is not a philosopher. No one exists who does not have a worldview. You can take a Valasian peasant, and <clears throat> you talk to him, he has a worldview. You take the man who runs the uh, who runs a garage way back in the uh, in the red clay country of Georgia, and he may never he may despise the word philosophy, but he is a philosopher. As a matter of fact, one can make a point that there's no more philosophy spoken anywhere than around the gas pumps in Georgia filling station. <laughs> <laughs> and you may not you may not at all know that it's a philosophy, but and may not they may not know they're talking philosophy, but they're talking philosophy. They're talking about a world view. Now, you could begin in the study of philosophy leading up to our revolution in Berkeley in 1964 in many, many places. But a good place to begin is with Plato. And there's been a fairly recent book written uh, saying that all philosophy since Plato was a footnote. And that's giving Plato a bit too much credit, to put it mildly. But having said this, while it is a bit too much credit, in a way there's a truth in it. Because Plato staked out something which philosophy has never been able to deal with since. And that is that there must be an absolute. There must be an absolute, or particulars have no meaning. Now, you must understand the terminology here. What is a particular? A particular is an individual thing. An individual thing. Uh, so these, this microphone before me is a particular. Uh, the chairs are a particular. Uh, my notes are a particular. Uh, an individual molecule is a particular. An individual atom, A-T-O-M, is a particular. An individual energy particle is a particular. But specifically, man is a particular. And so the dilemma comes, the dilemma comes of what meaning does a thing have if there's not something absolute to which to relate it? And the answer is, Plato said, there will be no meaning to anything unless there is an absolute to which you can relate it. And Plato has won all the, all the, the battle since, in a way, because he's right. He's not wrong, he's right. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre has said it in a more modern sense, and when he says that a finite point has no meaning unless it has an infinite reference point. And this is a more modern way of saying the same thing. Well, there's a difference between the two men. Plato hoped that someone would find an absolute. Jean-Paul Sartre is a modern man who has given up the hope of ever there being such an infinite reference point. This was a, this is a tremendous distinction. But both of them, well analyzed, being brilliant men, analyze what lesser men sometimes pass by. And that is a thing has no meaning, a thing has no meaning unless it has something absolute to refer it to. Now we can see this in morals most easily, though amazingly, I'm, I'm always amazed uh, what, how bright people seem not to even see it in the area of morals. And they seem to think they can talk about things being good and things being bad without any reference point to refer the question of good and bad. But it, it doesn't take much thought to think of it in the terms, in the terms of morals. But it isn't only morals, it's in the terms of meaning, the meta area of metaphysics. And in the area of metaphysics as well, in the area of the meaning of existence, including the existence of man, there is no meaning to man, and there is no meaning to the existence of the universe, unless there is some infinite point to refer it to. And I'm repeating, these men who have put forth this, pro this proposition, I believe, are completely right. And I think not only that, but I think, though they are not biblical, and neither of them Christian, the statements they're making fit exactly into what the Bible teaches. And that is, you have to have a really infinite thing to which to reflate things, 
or metaphysics as well as morals have no meaning. So you can't say a thing is right or a thing is wrong unless there's something that makes it right or wrong. You can't have right and wrong in a vacuum. It isn't possible. But you can't have meaning in a vacuum either. And this really, as we'll see as we go on in these lectures, is the damnation of modern man. Is that having no real reference point to which to refer things, he can't find any meaning for anything, including the meaning of man. This is, if anything, is the dilemma of this generation. This is it. But it's more profound, though this doesn't enter into this first part of this lecture, though I may get to it before I'm finished, but it's true also in the area of knowing, the subject, the, part, the branch of philosophy known as epistemology, how we know and how we know we know, and how we know that what we know has a correlation to what is there. And unless you have something to relate things to, you have no way of being sure of knowing either. And this is really, this is the heart of modern man's dilemma. The modern man, not having any reference point, any absolute reference point, not only cannot find anything that is right or wrong, not only has things, not only cannot find anything that gives meaning and value to life, including man, but he cannot find any way to be sure that he knows because he has nothing to refer things to. None whatsoever. But let's think for a moment, let's not get caught up in, in epistemology, because that would take us off far ahead of this point in our lectures. But let's think in the area of morals and metaphysics. Simply in these two areas, a strong emphasis then, that unless you have an infinite point to refer things to, that there is nothing that you can say is right, and there is nothing you can say is wrong, these become meaningless words. And secondly, you cannot find any meaning to anything, including including man. Now, to understand the shift that has come and why Hodge would have why Hodge would not have failed at home, and why his three his wonderful three volumes simply wouldn't touch everything in our generation, you must understand that the philosophers all the way to the days of Charles Hodge, all the way back to the Greeks, and certainly through the Renaissance and the high and the, and the age of enlightenment in France. All the schools of philosophy had three things in common, and this you really must understand. It's worth taking a long time to get it ground into our bones. The first thing they had in, the first thing they had in common, the non-Christian philosophers I'm speaking of, is that they were rationalists. They were rationalists. Now we must understand the definition of these terms, and I often think that a lot of misunderstanding about my own work comes because people don't take time to see a distinction in the first two of these points that I'm going to give to the three. The first is rationalism. And the proper definition of rationalism, and the only real definition of rationalism, is the concept of man beginning with himself, even though he's finite, and trying to gather enough particulars to make his own universals to make his own universal. And rejecting all knowledge outside of himself as autonomous man. And specifically rejecting any knowledge from God. Now that's rationalism. The only definition of rationalism that really is accurate. Some such definition. It could be in different words. Rationalism, therefore, is man beginning from himself even though he's finite, gathering his own particulars and trying to make his own universals out of the particulars, and rejecting all knowledge outside of himself as autonomous man, 
and specifically rejecting any knowledge from God. That's rationalism. On the other hand, reason, or rationality, while sounding like the same thing, is entirely different. They're not really related, basically. The validity of reason, or rationality, simply means that you can think on the basis of antithesis, that a certain thing is right and a certain thing is not right. I'm not thinking of morals for truth, first of all. And that you can make a decision. And reason is very, very different from rationality, the validity of reason. For those of you who have studied basic logic, it's simply the first move in your, in your book, if you'll remember, in your basic logic, if you study classical logic, was A is not none A. Sounds like a silly sentence until you really think of how profound it is. In other words, if this is true, this is not true. The antithesis is not true. The methodology of the validity of reason has always been antithesis that you can make, you can have categories, that the reason can decide this is true and this is not true, carries with it overtones in the area of moral, but specifically I'm thinking in the area of truth and non-truth. So the early, the philosophers, up through the days of Charles Hodge, all believed, all were rationalists, I mean the non-Christian philosophers, but they also were very much committed to the concept of reason. You can think, for example, of the age of reason, the age of enlightenment at the time of Voltaire and these other men, how proud they were of their reason. Now, these men were all optimists. They all believed that on the basis of rationalism, plus reason, that somebody was going to come to a unified field of knowledge. A unified field of knowledge is the proper terminology. In other words, on the basis of their rationalism, plus reason, they were committed to the thought that somebody along the way would find an answer and be able to draw, as it were, a circle. And in that circle would be all of knowledge and all of life. So they believed that out of the, they were optimists. Now, they would all acknowledge that they hadn't found it. But they would be convinced that somebody would find it, and hopefully tomorrow. So the whole of philosophy is simply this, and that is one man, one man would say, uh, here is a circle in which it all fits, and the next man would say, no, that doesn't, that's mistaken, but here is the circle, and the next man would say, no, but here is the circle, and the next man would say, not at all, but here is the circle. And the next man would say, well, here is the circle. And this is the one who studied the, philosophy, the history of philosophy so discouraging to a young student. A young student who goes to a philosophy course and expects to find answers and then studies the history of philosophy it feels overwhelmed because this goes on for, for century after century. It goes on age after age. Each man wiping out the man who has been before him but being absolutely convinced. And then you could go down here. Uh, absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. Uh, that somebody was going to find it. So the mark of the old philosophers were, philosophers was rationalism plus reason, leading in their thoughts optimistically to somebody finding a unified field of knowledge. You can say uh, an answer to life. An answer to life. That whatever facts would be turned up in the present or the future could be fit into the circle, and all of life could be fit into the circle. You could live in the, in the, in the circle. These men were all optimists. And as I say, when Charles Hodge and Warfield were working, and in the early days of Machen, 
Everybody, everybody thought this way. Just everybody thought this way. Now, where does the new wavy new place begin? Well, as I've stressed in some of my books, and especially Escape from Reason, I believe the new way of thinking begin, you must go back to Thomas Aquinas. The Thomas Aquinas did something which made a difference. He had a concept, he had a concept which he didn't know would lead. I, I don't think Thomas Aquinas thought it was going to lead in this direction, but it led in the direction of the position in which those who followed him emphasized a fallen will because they believed in a historic space-time fall. But a fallen will, but which was not a complete fall in the sense, in the sense that, uh, in the sense that the intellect in some senses was free. I don't want to blame this on Thomas Aquinas himself, but those who followed Thomas certainly developed it into this area. Um, the two great philosophers of ancient times, Aristotle and Plato, it's not saying they're the only great ones, but they were, they're the two outstanding ones, and they stand in opposite positions. Raphael, in his School of Athens, which now is in the, which is in one of his stands, or one of his rooms in the Vatican, but the cartoon of which, the original drawing of which, is in the Ambrosian Museum in Milano, pictures these two men in the two positions, which illustrates the difference of their uh, of their stand. Plato is pointing upward. Aristotle is going like this. Always reminds me of a baseball umpire saying you're safe. Uh, that wasn't what he was doing, though. Uh, but that's sort of a gesture. Um, now, when you have uh, the, the, the differences, the Plato is putting his emphasis on the concepts of absolutes. Aristotle was putting his emphasis on the particulars. So it's oversimplification for those of you who are philosophers, but it'll do for this kind of a lecture. And so the Aristotle puts his emphasis on particulars, and out of Thomas Aquinas came an Aristotelian emphasis, an Aristotelian emphasis which came to control the Roman Catholic Church. The reason the Roman Catholic Church rejected Copernicus and Galileo is not because of anything in the Bible, but because they contradicted Aristotelian thought. This is the reason the Church was against them. The Church was not opposed to Copernicus and Galileo because there was anything in the Bible which Galileo and Copernicus were, uh, in their basic teaching, that is, they were peripheral things, but in their basic teaching was contradic were contradicting. But they were contradicting the Aristotelian thought that had become the dominant thought form of the Roman Catholic Church. You see, we must recognize, let me say in parenthesis, a danger. Uh, and the danger is a very important one to recognize. And that is we can, we can be Christians and yet allow an outside influence to come in, which we make equal to the word of God. And so it really becomes a framework through which we even feed the word of God. And there's a danger to evangelicals. There's a danger to the fundamentalists doing this, those of us who are evangelical and orthodox. We can do it with our own theological systems, which are beyond the scriptures. And these people did it with Aristotelian thought. So therefore, with Aquinas, you had an emphasis on a, the will was fallen, but the intellect was somewhat free. Now, he didn't, he didn't, try, he didn't see it as leading to a dichotomy. But nevertheless, it was in this direction, and it led in two different directions. The one is the growth of natural theology, 
And that is that you, that the intellect can generate something even if it doesn't have the scriptures. And this led as a corollary to the fact then by such a writer as Dante, who followed Thomas Aquinas, of the fact that the old, the old classical thinkers in Greece, uh, were preparers for the gospel. You can see how that fits together. So therefore, what he opened on one side with the concept the concept that uh, of a natural theology, you had a concept, uh, you could see it slightly different. A second result was the philosophy began to be free from the scriptures. You began to, began to have a philosophy which was possible, which was autonomous from the scriptures and the control of the scriptures. Now then, this did not, this was not static. But it grew, and it grew beyond, it grew beyond where, where, uh, where Thomas Aquinas would have wanted it to grow. Nor was it static. Incidentally, in parenthesis again, many of these thinkers would, would, would not like where their thought was taken. I think the same thing's true of Kierkegaard, and even Karl Barth. But they opened the door to a thing, and they are responsible for opening the door. They made the tragic mistake, and I think Thomas Aquinas made the tragic mistake. Then quickly it was picked up and carried into the arts. Because the schools are usually the flow does go in this direction, from the philosophers and the intellectuals through the arts to the mass of people. And Thomas Aquinas' view was carried very quickly into the arts. And we'll pick that up and go on from there this afternoon.